again, good morning, everybody. That's not too bad. If you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to go to John chapter 16 with me. John chapter 16, I'm all excited because I actually have an entire sermon. As some of you that were here last week know, I had some technical difficulties and preached seven of my ten pages and got to the page seven, didn't have the rest, so I made it up as I went along last week. But thankfully, we have the entire passage or the entire transcript this week. So Matthew, or sorry, John chapter 16, I want to begin reading in verse 16. And if you have a study Bible, probably above your heading, it might say exactly what I've titled my sermon, which is Jesus turns our sorrow into joy. I know in my ESV Bible, it says your sorrow will turn into joy as the heading over this particular passage. So let's read this together, all right, as as a church family. Allow me to read to you. Jesus says to the disciples, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Then Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me again. Truly, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Then he gives an illustration of what he's talking about. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. And why? For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But you will see me again. But Sorry, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Well, if anything, sometimes as as spontaneous as I am, as much as I love change and all these things, I do get into rhythms and traditions and so on and so forth. And preaching through this gospel of John, I have at some point or started every single sermon I have preached by quoting John chapter 20 verse 30 and 31. And the reason for that is because it is the purpose statement of the entire gospel. And if you're keeping count, this is my 86th sermon from John. And I'm at John chapter 16, verse 16. Now, I promise I'll get going, although I will tell you, I'm excited to get to John chapter 17, which is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And I'm currently reading a two-volume set by one of the Puritans, who preached 145 sermons just from John 17. He preached 11 sermons from verse 20. 
I don't think I got that in me, but I just give you that for comparative righteousness when you think I've taken a long time in John, there's guys that have been worse than me, all right? But what is this verse that I keep talking about? Well, let's keep the tradition alive because when John wants to summarize, basically, you've read this gospel I've written, here's why I wrote it. Here's the conclusion I wanted you to come to. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which he's including himself in. And he says, these many other signs, they're not written in this book of John, this gospel. He says, but these, those seven great signs that we have gone through already are written for a reason, that you may believe that Jesus Christ sorry, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, when I say that word, you may have life in his name, when I read these verses in John 16 and John chapter 20, what kind of life do you imagine John was talking about? What what picture or emotions or feelings or outlook do you think John wanted you to conjure up and imagine when he says that by believing you might have life in his name? Do you think he's really talking about a meager existence? Do you really think he's saying, oh, I hope you'll just barely get by or that you'll just hang on Or when I read this passage, when I read John chapter 20, 30, and 31, does it not sound like you and I are supposed to, by reading this gospel, if we believe it and trust it, we will come to the conclusion that coming and following Jesus Christ will bring you happiness, will bring you peace, that you won't merely survive this life, you can actually thrive in it, or dare I say, have joy wonderful joy, unbelievable joy, eternal joy, everlasting joy. Let me be honest. First Sunday of March 2022 on planet Earth, as that old comedy on television was called, The Third Rock from the Sun. Who in our world doesn't want joy? You see, for Jesus, joy is a big deal. He's spoken much of it in this final conversation in John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. And it's amazing considering how the conversation started and where the life of Jesus will go in the next 18 hours as you read the Gospel of John. And yet, have you ever thought about how much in life just in your lives, just stop and think right now how much this pattern of sorrow then joy happens. There's pain and then there's relief. There's pain and then there's victory. Hence why Jesus said you're going to have sorrow and then joy. And if you think about it, what do you think is driving the Ukrainians right now? Are they not in pain and in sorrow? And if you've watched the news or read any of the articles, they are a people longing for and hoping in joy. One of the most powerful articles I read and listened to this past week was this young Ukrainian couple who just got married. 
young, beautiful couple, and they showed a great pictures of their wedding, and they got married on one day and then traded in the, the bride's a gown and the groomsman's attire to put on camouflage, and they both joined the resistance. And one of the news people I was watching was interviewing this young bride, and she was talking about the sorrow, and yet they long for and hope. And in fact, her husband was off on a mission. She had no idea where he was, hoping he would come back in a couple of days. And she's looking in the camera, and she's like, right now there is sorrow, but we long for joy, and we cannot wait to be reunited, and we want a free country and we want to start a family. And she was clinging to this idea. They couldn't wait for the joy of reunion and a possible victory. And for her, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. And believe it or not, this concept is in just about every movie you guys watch. This is what our culture is in love with. But ultimately... In the passage we have before us in John 16, Jesus chooses to use the illustration of a woman giving birth. And if, in fact, if you take the time to talk to any woman who has gone through childbirth, or I'll even go further, talk to any one woman who even hasn't gone through but has longed for a child who has gone through the struggle of adoption and waiting, and they above most will tell you stories of sorrow and pain that was followed by joy, unimaginable joy. And so our passage before us, which is just 16 to 24, I think we can break it down into three points. So if you're writing this down and you want to follow along and study about it, and I know some of our small groups will talk about this tonight, number one, Jesus' plans can seem confusing. And that's verses 16 to the first half of verse 20. All you have is a little while, Jesus says in verse 16, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. And 17, 18, and 19 in the first half of 20 is basically John being honest, the apostle who writes this, going, here's how confused we were. We had no idea. And yet, if you think about it, almost everything Jesus has said at this last meeting with the disciples has been confusing. If you start all the way back in chapter 13, Jesus said, I'm leaving, I'll be betrayed, and you're all too weak to stand with me or even help me. Then in chapter 14, after saying these three wonderful, hope-filled things, he says, let not your heart be troubled. He says to them that he was going to go to prepare a place for them and that he'd come back from them. And of course, that led to more confusion and Philip and Thomas are asking Jesus, what are you talking about? What do you mean you're going and coming back? Where is this you're going? And then he tells them three times in chapter 13 and 14 and 15, they're supposed to love each other. Then he says, you're not my servants, you're my friends. Oh, and yes, you're my friends, but I'm leaving. And, and now that I'm leaving, I'm also going to send you someone better than me. I'm going to send you this comforter who's going to do all kinds of amazing things and guide you and empower you and enlighten you. And then again, we get to chapter 16, verse 16, and Jesus says, I'm leaving for a little while, and then I'll be back. And it is all, well, uh, just confusing. These 11 guys who had walked and talked with Jesus for somewhere between 18 to 36 months are just confused. They don't know what to make of it all. They're tired Maybe they're even scared. 
You don't think they're not looking at each other going, where's Judas? Judas left hours ago and we haven't seen him. And then there was that whole triumphal entry stuff and Jesus telling off the scribes and the Pharisees. The, the folks go from singing for them to being mad at them, let alone the fact that they're in Jerusalem. They had been figuring that Jesus was going to overthrow Rome and convince the Jews that he was Messiah, but from their point of view, overthrowing Rome didn't seem to be on the agenda. And the Jewish leaders, well, they just wanted Jesus dead. Now, we have the advantage of being a half a world away and over 2,000 years removed, but put yourself there. Take a minute right now in the midst of maybe tens or hundreds or even thousands of sermons you've heard, but right now put yourself there. How would you have felt? Would you think you'd be the one to go, oh, I get it. No, I'm here to tell you with all humility, I and we would have been just as confused as these 11 guys. And think about if you didn't have the rest of the Bible. See, sometimes we read our Bible and we go, I don't understand. Well, it's easy for you to say that when you've got all the Bible. They didn't have that. Now, in case some of you might think, no, Steve, listen, I would have got it. I would have listened. I would have pieced it together. Okay, well, let me get a bit more personal. Let's strike a little bit closer to home, and let's think about the last two years. Think of all the times you've been confused, tired, scared, angry, or frustrated over the last two years, wondering what it all means, wondering yourself, why is this happening? Wondering, what's next? Then add to that the last 10 days. Mixed with all the added pressure and buildup of the so-called lifting of COVID restrictions, we have then, tempered with that kind of euphoria, depending on where you fall on it, is the rising gas prices. And are we not? And have we not? been guilty over the last 10 days, the last two years, of being just a little bit confused, speculating on the whys, and the wondering on the how it was all going to work out? I know I have. You see, this is why I love John chapter 16. It's why I love my Bible. I love passages like this, especially this first few verses. Don't throw these away when, when it just seems like John's letting us know that the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while? We don't get it. And you can see the 11. What do you think he means? Well, what do you think he means? I don't know what he means. This is all confusing. What do you think is going on? I love it because, namely, I can put myself there. I can identify with this because whether it's money or family, whether it's a job or church, Maybe it's buildings or ministry or budgets to people. You see, I get great comfort that I can open my Bible and I can see normal human beings struggling with all the stuff I struggle with. And that's why every one of you here needs to not treat your Bible like an encyclopedia, but actually put yourself there and identify with it and then bring your human self into the narrative. Because when I see all this then I see a Savior named Jesus who is patient and long-suffering. I see the hope of Jesus. I see the love of Christ as he deals with these 11 confused guys, and he assures them, and this assures me, that he's going to deal with me in the same way as well. See, the pandemic of evangelicalism in Canada 
is I actually think we have got one of the poorest views of God we've had in human history. And that is tragic considering we have access to more Bibles, more books, more sites on how to know God than ever before. And yet when I have conversations with people and they truly get honest with me about what it is they're dealing with and how they think God is looking at them in response to what they're dealing with, it is absolutely shocking how much we do not believe God is good. Even though we say it and sing it and we've got bumper stickers and plaques and mugs and t-shirts that say that. And this is why Hebrews 4 comes to mind. If you've been joining us as this month, the month of March, we're focusing on the book of Hebrews. And I loved Hebrews 4 because it comes to that very famous passage of Scripture that every time we are confused or we have doubts or fears or we have anxiety, we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who was tempted in everything you and I are tempted in, yet without sin. Now, don't miss the order. It says, so let's come boldly before the throne of grace. Now, we missed this sequence. Steve preached a sermon about this a little while ago. And it says, if you come boldly before Christ, boldly before your high priest, who knows how you feel and you are honest, and we say, I need help. I messed up. I'm a mess. I am frustrated. I'm angry. I'm bitter. Whatever it is. Notice the sequence. It says that we may receive mercy... That's what it says. Now, what is mercy? Steve told us, right? It means when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. So when we come to Jesus with all of our junk, all of our confusion, all of our questions, all of our anxieties, then we come to Christ and you will receive mercy. And then he says, and you will find grace. Now, what's grace? When God gives us what we don't deserve. So when we get mercy where God doesn't give us what we do deserve, and then we find grace where Jesus gives us what we don't deserve, that you may find grace in your time of need. Now let me ask you something honestly. From the youngest of you to the oldest, how many times in the last 160 hours did you boldly go to the throne of grace and just say, I'm confused. I don't get it. I don't understand what's going on. The world is changing faster than I can keep up with it. We're redefining everything. I don't know what masculinity is or femininity is. I don't know about roles. Wrong is right, right is wrong, justice seems to be changing all the time. I never know what to be angry at or for. I never know what to be cheering for or against. It seems like everything changes, and the moment I get up in the morning, and I'm just confused. And if you'll notice with me in these verses, as they argue about this amongst themselves, and then you come into verse 19, and Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. (laughs) Uh, Just so you all know, when you go to Jesus and you're all like, I don't even know what to ask. Jesus goes, perfect, because I do. I know what you want to ask. If you want to hear about that, you can read about that in Romans chapter 10, where the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf, even when we don't know what to say. And notice what Jesus does. He knows them, and he knows their questions and their confusions. But look at it. Look at what he says. Why don't you ask me? 
Is this what your question is? And you'll notice he doesn't break out flow charts. He doesn't get out his best prophecy conference flow charts. He doesn't say this will happen and then this will happen and this will happen. No, instead he says, here's how you're going to feel. This is what you're going to experience. And quite frankly, if you're ready for this profundity, he tells them the truth. He doesn't speculate. He actually meets them in their humanity. He talks about their emotions and their responses. You're going to have sorrow, and then you're going to have joy, and the world is going to rejoice. These are all emotions of our human makeup, and this is why I'm a Christian. I want you to know, both here and online, I am a Christian. You know why I'm a Christian? Because Jesus is real and raw and truthful. He tells us the truth, and he deals with the disciples and with you and I in honest human terms, which leads me to our second point in the second part of 20 and verse 21 and 22, Jesus' plans will bring us sorrow at times. See, Jesus' plans are going to be confusing at times, and Jesus' plans will bring us sorrow at times. There's no disputing it in this text. There's no disputing this. Life with Jesus is not always going to be sunshine and roses. Can I get a witness? There we go. And one of the greatest lies, Calvary Baptist, and you need to know this, and every one of you tuning in online, because this is especially important in St. John's, Newfoundland, one of the greatest lies perpetrated on this island for the last two centuries is this idea of the prosperity gospel. This idea that if you come to Jesus, it's like we all meet country music Jesus. You come to Jesus and you get your dog back and your truck back and your house back and your wife back and the kids back. That is not the Bible. In fact, Jesus explicitly says, look at what he says in verse 20. A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. That does not sound like a Skittles life to me. That sounds to me like Jesus is being totally truthful. I've got a plan, and that plan at first is not going to seem to go well. And believe it or not, as much as the world denies it, I actually think the world gets it, and we just try to avoid it. Because all of you here, young people and oldest alike, if you don't believe the world doesn't instringently get this, why do we have such famous sayings as, no pain, no gain? You'll probably find that on every gym in this city. No pain, no gain. What about this, especially in times of war or, or sports times when we see, uh, you know, Super Bowls and Stanley Cups and all these things and we hear about people pain and they get teeth knocked out and they break bones and they still, what do we say? When the going gets tough, what? The tough get going. That's a world statement. That's not a Christian statement. This is the world itself admitting life means resistance. There is, after all, again, may I quote the world, no such thing as a free lunch. That's the world's saying. That's not the Bible. Jesus tells his disciples and you and I about the sorrow. And because we've got our entire Bible, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about the sorrow of the cross. A little while, I'm going to go. In the next 12 hours, I will be betrayed with a kiss by Judas, your friend. And you'll all take off. 
Peter, you're going to deny me. And I'm going to be beaten and spit upon and mocked. A crown of thorns will be shoved on my head. My beard will be plucked out. They will mock me and they will put a cross on me after whipping me within inches of my life. So much so that I'll be too physically weak to carry my own cross. And they'll get a guy from the crowd named Simon to help me carry it. Then they're going to string me up before my mother and the crowd naked. And I will get laughed at and dared. And two thieves will argue over me. And yet I will care for my mother. They'll offer me a sedative. They're going to run a spear up my side, and then I'm going to die. I'll be buried in a borrowed tomb, and there will be great sorrow. But in the context of this passage, there's so much more, because not only is it the sorrow of the cross, it's the sorrow of life between the cross and his ascension. Because there's going to come great elation and joy when they find out that Jesus rises from the dead only to discover he's going to leave them in Acts chapter 1. And they look up, remember, and these angels come and say, men of Galilee, why do you gaze up? But even more, in the context of this passage, he tells them of the already but not yet. He explains to them that I'm going to go and I'm going to put you as my missionaries. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit and you'll be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and Judea and, the, and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And they will go and live it out and yet they will suffer greatly for it. So Jesus was going to leave them. Now, think about that. Right now in the back is my middle boy and, his, and Rebecca and our third grandbaby, Ella. And I love the fact that I get to preach and I look back and I see that little baby in her fuzzy hair. And it was such joy when they landed at the airport yesterday and I got to hold her and see them and our whole family was at our home last night and the chaos of having all these little kids and everything happening and there was great joy and yet as I sat there and I soaked it all in, I was immediately aware of the fact that in just a few days they will leave. Can you imagine what these men have been with and through with Jesus? They have watched him raise the dead, feed thousands, walk on water, cast out demons. They've watched him stare down religious authority and Roman rule. They've watched him weep before a a grave and then call a man who had been dead for four days back to life. And now he's leaving. They've cried with him and laughed with him. They've swapped stories. I know many of you have watched that television show that's been on over the last number of years, and it really has gone out of its way to try and show you the emotions of this interaction between the disciples and Jesus. But it's not only are they sorrowful because their friend, their Messiah is leaving, but they're sorrowful because Jesus says, the world is going to rejoice. It's going to feel like you're the only ones who are sad. It will feel like everybody else is having a party. Finally, the nuisance is out of the way. Oh, we we appreciated him, but he was a nuisance and and he made us uncomfortable. And not only that, 
they'll feel sorrow because in some degree they're going to be disappointed. It didn't go according to their plan. But this must be why Jesus chose childbirth as his illustration. Because in verse 21, notice what he says. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, I've had the privilege of being present for all three of my kids being born. And I've seen those. And not only that, because I'm in ministry, I've heard countless stories of women and their childbirth stories. And at the end of this, I will tell you, and I've heard about childbirth from no one more often than my mother who takes great joy and delight in telling me what giving birth to me was like. But the reality, the whole process of a child being born is the, ch- the illustration that Jesus chooses to use. And think about childbirth. There's the intimacy of even getting pregnant in the first place. The stress of being able to get pregnant Then there's the unmitigated joy of the pregnancy announcement. And we've taken that to a whole new level in our culture, haven't we? We've got gender reveals and parties for this and that and everything else. But as soon as you make the announcement, then that's followed by nine months of waiting. And then comes the pain. But I've seen it in my own wife's eyes. The sheer pain and toil of contractions. The vulnerability of so many folks seeing you in some of the most awkward of circumstances. But then something happens. Because then you hear the cry of a born baby. (laughs) Thank you, darling. Thank you, Ella. Perfectly timed. And then they take that wee little baby and they clean her or him and, re- and immediately put it on the chest of that exhausted mom. And every time I've been around it or seen it or experienced it, there's tears of joy. And never once, never once did Debbie look at me and go, never again. Something happens, and you'll notice it third and finally, because Jesus' plans will always end in joy. And that's in verses 22 to the end. Now step back again and think about the situation. Kent Hughes says, few of us can fully appreciate the misery the disciples experienced in this last night with Jesus. When they saw their master framed against the rising sun, pathetically agonizing through his last hours, helpless and impotent. The disciples have been up all night. They had no nourishment since their last supper together. Then came this dizzying whirl of events from the exit of the upper room, the descent from the dark walls of Jerusalem up to the slopes of the Olivet, the vigil at Gethsemane with a master repeatedly casting himself down in prayer, Peter's denials, then his curses, and soon after that, the ravenous, howling mob, the butchery of the Lord, the Messiah at Golgotha. Nor can the joy be described when three days after Jesus' death and the disciples learn he's alive. Matthew describes the ecstasy of Mary and Martha, and it only really gives us a hope, 
a hint. So the women hurried away, afraid, yet filled with joy, and they ran to the disciples. Can any of us really know what it was like when these sisters charged into the disciples' presence and said, He's alive. The grave is empty. And the disciples had been cast to the depths of the spear, but in a few hours they were hurled into the pinnacle of joy. Can you imagine the swings of their emotions from from sorrow to relief, from grief to joy? And as the reality grew, can't you see themselves pinching themselves? Because their emotions had run the gamut from misery to joy. Their joy was far deeper and more profound than it had ever known. Jesus did not replace their sorrow. He transformed it. Christopher Fowler says this, They have joy and comfort that the angels cannot give and evil cannot take. (laughs) See, Jesus promises joy. In fact, one of the reasons I think everyone should read John is because you'll meet Jesus as he converses with people, hurting people, searching people, the down and out, the desperate, the angry, the despised. You'll meet moms and dads. You'll meet sick and healthy, rich and poor. You'll meet the religious and the irreligious. You'll meet doubting Thomas and foot and mouth Peter. And then there are young lads and young maidens. But the plan and the promise is always the same. Come to me, trust me, and I'll give you life. And I mean joyful life. Oh, and by the way, Jesus is saying all of this because he's going to walk it first. Yet a little while, I'll be be gone, and then I'll be back with you. Why? Because he's going to go. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. But come to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 12, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You see, the miracle of the cross transformed sorrow into joy, even for Jesus. And so God does not mean that after a woman gives birth, he cannot remember the pain of childbirth. Go talk to any mom here. It's not that she doesn't remember. It's rather Jesus is saying that the joy of a new child outweighs that sorrow. Which is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians This momentary light affliction doesn't compare to the eternal weight of glory in what we have. The problem is, from the youngest of you to the oldest, we don't really believe this. And remember, Jesus promises joy based on two criteria. Number one, you and I will have access to him always and everywhere. The reason he's leaving is so he can give us his spirit. And the whole backdrop of the Holy Spirit in the first half of this chapter is there. And you see it all in the New Testament from Acts to Revelation. Paul expressly talks about this in 2 Timothy 4 when he is dragged before Caesar and he says, nobody stood with me. Everybody abandoned me, but I stood there with Jesus. Jesus was with me and I was not afraid. We experience it when we come to know Christ Because our mourning over sin turns into the joy of a new life. You see, you want to know if you've really gotten the gospel? You want to give yourself a little test about if you've really gotten the gospel? How easy is it for you to admit that you're a mess, that you're a sinner? Because when you know what you have in Christ, you are not afraid anymore. 
Hence why Paul would write to Timothy and he'd say, you know what, who I am, Tim? I am a persecutor of the church. But God in his mercy saved me. We love that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But do you realize the writer was a raping murderer who had given the first half of his life to debauchery and alcohol and running slaves from Africa to England and the United States. And then God saved him. And he spent the rest of his life loving on the very people that he had treated like property. And one of his favorite lines is, I'm not what I should be, but I'm not what I once was. Because Jesus is making me what he would have me to be. And one day I'll be fully his. You see, the problem with our gospel in Canada is often our gospel is a little bit too cheap. We just don't realize how messed up we are and how great God is. But secondly, the disciples used to have to go to Jesus for the request. If you look at the last part of our passage, he goes in verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. In fact, he says, up until now, whatever you ask, now you're going to ask in my Father's name. Because you'll notice he says, you've never asked me for anything, not in my name. Because now they can ask in Jesus' name to God the Father. You see, they had requests and questions, but he was physically with them. And if you want proof of this, think of what happens in John chapter 21 when he's resurrected. Remember, and he appears to them in the upper room, but Thomas isn't there. And then Thomas comes and they said, Jesus is alive. And you guess what he says? We have seen the Lord, but he said, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and I place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. But now, Jesus is saying, your sorrow will be turned to such joy because you will be able to go straight to God the Father in my name. That's the promise. And so what are you and I to do with a passage like this? Well, for starters, I think it's fair to ask us all, do we own the fact that we are all sometimes confused by the plans of God? I mean, can every one of you at least admit that today? You know what? There's many times I just don't get it. Have you lost a loved one? Buried a parent? Buried a child? Have you been betrayed or failed, diagnosed with a terminal illness or living through chronic pain? Have you been hurt in your past, taken advantage of, had your innocence robbed or taken from you? Hey, young people, are you struggling with things right now? Are you trying to find answers to things you're looking for? Are you trying to be honest and go, I don't know about Jesus or the Bible or life. And I don't know if it's true. And, and more, I don't know if it's worth it. And are you flooded with the whatabouts and the hey come, how comes and the what nows? And hey men, hey men, are you struggling with who you are in today's world? Ladies, are you too wondering who am I and what in the world is going on? 
See, one of the first lessons from John 16 is it's okay and normal to have these feelings and doubts and questions. The issue is, where do you bring them? I started in Hebrews 4, and let me remind you again. The preacher says, let us therefore strive to enter this rest. And he he actually says some of the most condemning things. He reminds us that the word of God is living and active and sharper. And then he says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. And we must give an account. That's a scary thing. But that's the verses he uses to lead into. Now, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, that's who you go to. Charles Spurgeon challenged his church on the opening Sunday of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He he said to his church in his closing, if Jesus rejects you, tell me. If he refuses you, bring it to this church. And then he says, and I promise you, until the last sermon is preached, no one will ever make this case. Because we can come to the table. We can bring all of our issues. Men, we can truly, bravely come to Jesus with our junk and our weaknesses. Ladies, it's actually strong and courageous to come to Jesus with your struggles and your questions. Young people, it's truly mature and grown up of you to bring your desires and your fears and your questions to Jesus. This passage cries out, come to Jesus. Be honest with yourself. And I mean that. Be honest. What are you feeling right now? How are you doing? What are you fighting with in you? Not the person next to you, in you. Are you angry or bitter? Are you struggling with rejection or loneliness? Are you mad at the world or afraid of what your kids are going to face? Some of you right now have been hurt by church where you feel like Christianity and church and all you know is not what you thought it would be. Then come, come to Jesus who is not only gentle and lowly, he's also the great high priest. And then listen, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What else are you to learn? That sorrow is a gift from Jesus and that this life is not what it's supposed to be. Believe it or not, in the Greco-Roman and Jewish world, the cross was universally recognized as a symbol of death. It was a place of weeping and mourning, and yet all that changed when God the Father sent God the Son to the cross for the purpose of taking upon himself death. Calvary Baptist and all of you watching online, the day that Christ died is no longer bad, but good Friday. It's not bad Friday, it's good Friday. Just as the cross for the Christian is not a symbol of death, but a symbol of eternal life. But most importantly, we learn that joy is our destiny from Jesus. And you know how you get this joy? When you pray. Because now we can go directly to God the Father in Jesus' name. 
But let me finish very quickly with just two final thoughts. Because some of you here or online might be those who are searching, doubting, doubting Jesus is even real. Or even maybe you're here and you secretly are like, yeah, you know what, I can identify with the world. I'm kind of rejoicing. I'm skeptical. I'm cynical. And I get it because I was there. But it's funny, you know, that Jesus would speak about childbirth as it relates to sorrow turned to joy. Because there's another biblical example of childbirth. It's given in the book of James, the half-brother of Jesus. You see, Jesus and sin both promise joy, but only one delivers. I saw a billboard leaving Starbucks on Friday. It was for a real estate agent. You can see it also. The same billboard is on your way to Costco. And the real estate agent, his motto was this, I find homes, you find happiness. And that is the world, as if a home is going to give you happiness. My experience with owning a home is it's momentary happiness followed by lots of bills and the stress and anxiety of maintaining said home. But that's what the world, the world wants you to think that happiness is a thing, a possession, a person, a drink, a vacation, a car, a name brand. James talks about the process that when we're tempted by sin and sin, when it is kind of taken root in us, brings forth, gives birth to death, not life and especially not joy. Only Jesus delivers And Jesus delivers because he was delivered by living for us and dying for us and rising again victorious over sin and death and Satan. So if you are out there this morning and you don't know him or you've doubted him, then I beg of you, come to Jesus because he will give you life and it's a joyful life. But it brings me to my last and final comment to every one of you here that thinks you're a Christian. When I was thinking about childbirth and the whole sorrow turned to joy illustration here in John 16, there are many of us here today who claim to be Christians. We claim to believe in Jesus and to trust him. But if we're being honest, we aren't feeling very joyful right now. Jesus might even seem far away. You're struggling with your peace and to trust Jesus in light of the things that's happening in your life and in life in general. And see, there's no point in coming to church or listening to the sermons if you're not at least willing to ask, what is actually going on in my life right now? What's wrong with my life? What's right with my life? I talked about my mom. All right, my mom went through 38 hours of labor in delivering me. She tells me with great delight, I went through eight uh, sets of, sorry, four sets of eight-hour nurses. And believe it or not, the umbilical cord got wrapped around my throat, and they lost my heartbeat. And so way back 50 years ago, I had to be delivered by C-section, which was a big deal back then. But the truth of the matter is, many of you know that I rebelled from God and my family when I was in my teen years. I ran away from home. I was angry with God and my parents. Things had been done to me that hurt me, and I had done things in anger and pain that hurt others. But you know what my mom would say when I was rebelling and all these things? My mom was very tempted to say that for all the pain of childbirth, nothing caused her more pain than when I rebelled against her as her son. When I didn't trust her or go to her or listen to her. And you, right now, some of you are like, I get it, I get it, right? But let me blow your mind here. Because you know what? Professing Christians, Jesus who has done everything for us, 
we are often tempted, at least I am, to think of Jesus the way I think of my mom. To think that when I don't do right, that all of a sudden, Jesus now is, do you know what I did for you? Do you know what I suffered for you? And hence, why I said, we have a bad view of Jesus. We are in Christ. And whether you've made a wreck of your life, or someone has made a wreck of your life, or you've experienced heartache that is totally outside of your control, we can never step outside of Christ as Dane Ortland says, God would have to ungod himself for his love toward us to stop. And so today, if you are not feeling joy or love, you and or I might have muted our experience of the joy of Jesus, but it doesn't mean it's not playing. You might have pressed mute, but Jesus is still singing of his love. And you might be here today and you might be ignoring the joy of Jesus or neglecting it. Maybe you even squandered it or misunderstood it, but listen to Jesus. Because he says to come to me and his arms are open wide in the same posture that he spread them on that cross. And he won't lecture you about how much he suffered and how ungrateful you are. In fact, his arms are open wide. And imagine this conversation. He says, nothing and none of that matters right now, my child. Don't give it another thought. All that matters now is you and me. You know you're a mess. You know you're a sinner. Your entire existence has been built around you. So step in out of that storm and let your heart crack open with joy. Because Jesus says, I was punished so you don't have to be. I was arrested so you could go free. I was indicted so you could be exonerated. And I was executed so you could be acquitted. And all of that is just the beginning of my love for you. That only proved my love, but it's not the end point. When you come to me, that's only the beginning. That's only for me to open the door into my love. Humble yourself enough to receive the love of Christ. Plunge your parched soul into the sea of the love of Jesus for you. And you will find the rest and relief and embrace. Jesus will never ever say to you, I told you so. He will always say to you, come to daddy. I love you. And when you start to see Jesus that way, you won't hide your sin. You won't make excuses for your sin. And dare I say it, church, you will actually find victory over sin when you see Jesus as this joyful. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, Forgive me if I have failed in any way to impress upon these friends and my family how much you love us. That you are not angry or impatient by our confusion. You tell us the truth about the reality of life and the sorrow that we will experience. And yet, you walk through it all so we could have confident joy. Lord, I'm so thankful for the church as the example in Acts chapter 5 when they suffered at the hands of the government and it said they prayed and for the joy it was to suffer for the sake of Jesus. Just like so many of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters are suffering and yet are joyful, singing in subways, in bomb shelters, praising God. So Lord, help us to bring our tough marriages to you and the struggles with parenting, or finding our identity as a man or a woman, or just money or career, 
or friends or parents or believing that Jesus, you're this wonderful and marvelous. And may you get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.